Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and off boarding, procuring devices, to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. The whole Southeast Asia has to come up as a group. Hence, that's why back to my secret about what I know about the VC industry that people don't know. The secret is that you've got to be very sane when it comes to investing, right? So if you invest so high, we can't get exits. Then when we can't get exits, we can't return money to LPs. And then the investors will say, oh, Southeast Asia cannot find exits one. Cannot be, right? So to me, we must be able to show exits. That's the proof of the pudding. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and the startups have a tough year raising funds in 2023 across Southeast Asia. With the US Federal Reserve is hopefully on track for a soft landing, what does it mean for startup investments? With me today to decipher the Southeast Asia and India market, I have Carmen Yuan, General Partner, Vertex Ventures, Southeast Asia and India. Carmen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Bernard. Thank you for having me on the show. Yes, Carmen, we met during the panel discussion and we discussed the state of uh, Southeast Asia in the XA Network AGM. So I want to continue the conversation because 35 minutes didn't really do justice to a lot of the much more interesting nuanced conversations we have after the panel and before the panel as well. So one of the first things I probably want to always start off in asking my first time guests on the show, what's your origin story? How did you start your career? Hmm. So typical, like any Singaporeans, most of us, we would have graduated from the university. And so when I graduated, I took on the very first job that was offered to me, and that was in the public sector. And uh, a couple of years into it, I felt that it was getting a little bit mundane. So then I switched jobs to this IT R&D outfit, which is actually under the then National Computer Board. And from there, there was a merger that happened. And as with all things mergers, things take a long time. And so again, the restlessness soul in me started looking out. And that was when I met a friend who was then with EDB Investments. I shared with him my CV and I was really very honest with him. I said, look, could you please just share this with your boss? And if there is a job fit, I would love to have an opportunity to discuss but you know, whatever that they do in the CV, I don't need to know. So if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And lo and behold, the, the discussion went on. And so this certain gentleman, Mr. Liao Fun Kyo, hired me into EDB Investments in 2000. And that was the break that I had that allowed me to continue my journey in the VC sector since 2000 till now. So EDB is the Economic Development Board of Singapore, which is very instrumental in making Singapore now a, probably one of the top hubs in the world. How did you eventually end up in Vertex Ventures? Mm. So, so after EDB Investments, I also went on to Enterprise, the then Spring Singapore, which is now known as Enterprise Singapore. And I was helming their seeds investment, their early stage co-investment program. But along the way, I needed to take time out because I have a dyslexic kid. 
And I just wanted to do what mothers will normally do, which is to take time out and just be an ama, a driver, right? To bring them around for remediation classes. So I was not working for a while. And towards the tail end, when her examination was going to come to an end, I thought, okay, maybe I should start looking out for uh, the next thing that I could do. And lo and behold, the managing partner at uh, Vertex Ventures, Chua Hock, called me, reached out to me. We had coffee and he mentioned that, look, we are going to start a new fund focused on Singapore startups. Do you want to be part of the team? And so it was quite a no-brainer. And uh, yeah, that's how I ended up in Vertex Ventures. And it's been 10 years since. Vertex Ventures is one of the top venture firms within the region. I myself personally know Hilok. We've spoken on various occasions and he's also on this show some years back. A lot of people probably know of y'all through the investment of Grab, right? One of the interesting things, so you have been in the government sector, you have also done investments from the public sector, now going into the private sector. From your career journey, what are the lessons learned that you can share with my audience? So one of the things is really never to settle. So when I was in Enterprise Singapore, Spring Singapore, running the seeds, we had dealt with a lot of founders, right? And we have seen founders who are young, mid-career, having family, way older, mature founders, like in their 60s and so on. So I was one of the observations I had is there's actually the best time to be an entrepreneur. And there are, it's never wrong to be an entrepreneur any time of your life, but there are some preferred pockets. So while you're young, before you're married, before you've got a housing loan to pay for, you can actually experiment and discover what best suits you. And actually, that could be the best time for entrepreneurs to start because that's the safest way. And even as you're dating, your partner knows that you're probably date broke most of the time and that lifestyle can continue. You just survive on your partner's income, etc. And even when the family comes along, you already have that lifestyle. So it's really safer. But as you move into your, your family life and you start having children, preschool education, insurance to pay for, it becomes a lot of stress. So I have also seen some of the founders because they're husband-wife team, they also not only terminate the business, they terminate their marriage. So that is really heartbreaking for me. So over the last 24 years, these are some of the things that I've witnessed. People who have also worked very hard for employers thinking that they can climb the corporate ladder to contribute a lot to the company, they also realize that they become sitting ducks, right? So, so they are just in the line of fire when you need to retrench and so on. So, so those are some of the observations I made. And therefore, it causes me to think. Entrepreneurs has a very important place to play in all economies. And they are sitting at the pinnacle of influence. If you talk about the ability to influence and shape lives, as an entrepreneur, you can. But the entrepreneur must make sure that the business is sound and that you actually have the interests of your people at heart. So when you need to, let's say, scale down your business and your team needs to take a pay cut, painful as it is, because these people know that you are watching their back, that you are going out there to try to bring in business to enable them to put food on the table, they're probably more willing to go through the pay cut with you. And people are talent. So even when companies downsize, it, it's usually a, a seasonal thing rather than a permanent thing. Permanent thing means maybe business doesn't make sense, right? Seasonal thing. Then people are talent. So once when the market picks up again, at least you've got the people on your team to then grow the business with you back again. So so yeah, so this is one of the one of the lessons that I've observed. Entrepreneurs are key. There is a good time to start being an entrepreneur. 
And as entrepreneurs, uh, what are some of the considerations they have to put before them to say, I want to be a million dollar, billion dollar company? Yeah, it's less mm-hmm. vanity. It is more true to the people around you. Interesting advice because I'm, I've gone through the startup phase before marriage and now I'm getting back into the startup phase after probably 12 years of uh, corporate career. So the only way to think about it from my point of view is the privilege of a lifetime is to be yourself. So I have to be an entrepreneur again, but more for the interest of the things that I want to build. Yes. But let's come to this main subject of the day, which is about Vertex Ventures and also about the state of venture capital in Southeast Asia in the 2024 era. So I have Kilok back many years back and he had talked about the entire Vertex holdings. But since you are here, can you provide my audience a comprehensive overview of Vertex Ventures, some of your recent key milestones because I've been following your firm with a lot of interest and also your current investment thesis on a more strategic level. Mm. So so Vertex Ventures is actually a, a big organization, right? So so the team that I work with, Vertex Ventures, Southeast Asia, India, we are one of several funds that's under the Vertex umbrella. So the Vertex umbrella comprises of different funds managed by different GPs with differing mandates and with very different investors. Of course, we have got investors that overlap, but majority of our investors are probably folks that we sort out on our own. So we have got teams in the IT side, IT investment opportunity side that sits in the US, another team managed by a very different group in Israel, then we have got a third team that looks into the IT side that sits in China. And then you have got Southeast Asia and India. Having said that, our China team also has carved out a practice that looks into healthcare, uh, but it's still under the China team. Over and beyond that, we also have a Vertex Healthcare and also a Vertex School Fund. So that is more on a global basis. So if I were to come back into Vertex Ventures, Southeast Asia and India, so we do have a few key investors. Tamasic invests through Vertex Holdings. So that is one of the key common investors across all six funds. But besides that, we also have quite a number of sovereign funds and also the developmental financial institutions, some corporates, family offices as well. Some of the milestones that I would say that Vertex Ventures, Southeast Asia and India have achieved is that we, as a company, we had quite an interesting transformation in the early 2010s. And so we were able to finally raise external capital when we raised Fund 3. That is like in 2016. That vintage looks to be very good. And we continue on to raise Fund 4 in 2020, just before COVID happened. And that fund is fully deployed. And on the back of Fund 3 and Fund 4, we were able to raise Fund 5 this was closed sometime last year. We made the announcement in November, despite the very difficult backdrop. So we are actually very thankful to investors who have believed in us and uh, also in our strategy, which didn't really change. Um, and hence, they continue to back us. Uh, some of the milestones that I would say we have achieved will be over the last 10 years or so since I have joined, um, other than us moving into being able to raise external funds and now be responsible for external monies. I've also seen how the team has rejuvenated. So previously, when I joined, we were operating in Singapore and one of our partners was flying to India quite often. But now we have actually brought in a new team. So Ben Matthias leads the team in India. 
and we have built out a team in India. And besides that, we have also grown a local team in Indonesia. We also have local teams in Vietnam and Thailand. The team has therefore grown and has also become way more sophisticated. So, and as a result, we're able to attract very strong talent who are keen to join us to make us even more uh, competitive or even better over, over the geographies that we create in. Mm. So, very interesting set of milestones. Of course, the raising the fifth fund during the sort of the 2023 when things are all in a downturn and there are some funds even having difficulties in trying to get to it, their next funds raised. Congratulations on that. So, what are your perspectives on the Southeast Asia and India markets, given that now you're actively investing into these regions? Mm. So, actually, India has a lot more momentum and interest from investors from the US. So we have seen large tech companies acquiring companies in India or investing into some of these so-called startups in India. In Southeast Asia, we are a complex region, right? So it is way harder to build a regional champion. In India, you are still governed by the same policies, the same tax laws, etc. But Southeast Asia, every moment you step into a new territory, is a new law, new sets of law different languages as well. So for us, what we feel is that because it is very hard to be a champion, therefore, if we invest in companies and founders that decide that they will be the champion, then it will become very prominent or very obvious a choice when companies decide to invest or expand into Southeast Asia, they will not miss these companies. So, so for us, the other thing I would like to see is for more of the large tech companies to consider acquiring some of these Southeast Asian companies so that we can see a wave of, of uh, exits that will be interesting in some of these large tech companies. Mm. We do believe that we have several founders who have built top-tier companies in their industries in our region. One is that of uh, the Asian parent, now known as the Parent Inc. Mm. They have just announced their acquisition of Mother's Work yesterday. So this actually helps her to strengthen her position in Southeast Asia, not just on the online side, but now with Mother's Work to also expand into the offline. And for me, this acquisition actually enables us to not become an even more obvious choice or target in that sense, mm. right? but I have to flip it the other way. And just to double click a little into that, given that you have invested in Grab, because Grab, you can see that it pervades across Southeast Asia. Finding that type of companies is not that simple because yeah. the market uh, dynamics is very different on that. Right. Did, I, did, did I get that right? Is, is it going to be more common that we're going to invest more into the local champions within Southeast Asia? Yes, that has always been our thesis to invest into local champions. Hence, that's why for us, Grab was quite a local champion started in Malaysia, expanded very quickly to the other regions, taking on Indonesia way later, right? So they can be, so to us, the thesis is that you can have a champion within Indonesia. The market itself is big enough to absorb one champion. But if you are going to look at all the other markets outside in Indonesia, none of them can be a solid champion in and of itself. Right. Although you can say, yeah, Philippines is probably a very big market with more than 100 million people, but it's only 100 out of 600, so 660 million. So it's still a small percentage. 
So if you want to be a regional champion, you do need to take on the entire geography for this region. And that was what uh, the Parent Inc. has shown itself to be able to do. Mm, I, I know Roshni, who's the founder behind that, and her husband is also running another startup. So this is Absolutely. a very interesting couple to watch. So Absolutely. what are the verticals that you invest in within these regions? Mm. So, so within the firm, Southeast Asia, India team, we look at six areas, right? So we look at the B2B and B2C. That's like everything. It's true. But we also focus on the fintech, on healthcare IT, on sustainability and mobility. So where do I look at? I do look at enterprise SaaS, some fintech and some healthcare. But even within these broad sectors, uh, there's also areas that we need to define. So the companies that I have invested into are those that helps with SMEs. So for example, StoreHub that provides point-of-sale solution, but more importantly, that's just a tool in the door. More importantly, is enabling the small F&B outlets, small retail outlets to have a direct engagement with their clients using very innovative solutions from the slips that comes up from the point of sales. Then we have also invested into patent platforms, PetSnap being one of them, mm. uh, also SaaS, and they are a global company and they have just done an announcement which we can talk about later. Um, mm. And then I also look at the digital payment infrastructure or lending infrastructure. Uh, so that's in the form of Tanky Lender, which is also a global proposition. And even within the fintech side, another one that is a small area is the InsureTech uh, platform, which is again pretty specialized. And that's in the form of Sunday insurance. So while I focus on certain areas, we've got other team members that covers other aspects of uh, each of these various verticals. So we kind of like try not to leave any stone unturned. And these verticals, do they map uh, similar to from Southeast Asia to India? Are they common at the moment? Um, so so yes, it, it is sort of common. However, it can take different forms, right? So however, for things like the pattern one, PestNet is, is already a global play. So there is really no need for a second similar looking company. Mm. But maybe for insurance, because it is very jurisdiction specific, we can actually look at other opportunities from India to serve the India community. And that can be a very big market. I mean, it's over a billion single Southeast Asia must find stew, right? So, so yeah, it can map across the, the geographies. Mm. I, I have, this is one of my favorite questions to all the VCs who come on my show. So what is a typical day like for you as a VC? Or like the word, B-U-S-Y. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really quite busy, right? So because the nature of our work is we have to hunt, after we hunt, we have to evaluate what kind of fertilizers we need. So that's due diligence. And after we have identified the fertilizers, we need to make a case. And assuming that the IC is agreeable, we have to manage. Uh, and that's only the honeymoon period, right? That's the best part of life. And even then, it's a lot of work. After we have invested in the company, then we realize, oh my goodness, there's so much problems, right? Especially in scaling the company, finding the talent, trying to redefine the next fundraise, dropping business lines, but emotional. There's a lot of fire to fight. Then we have to help them to find investors. We have to make a case for them. Then we have to go through the whole legal documentation when they next raise funds. 
and then hopefully we can find a buyer and then sell them, right? But in between all this, we still have to douse ourselves with a lot of coffee because we meet with other investors, other founders, other market makers, whatever. We also have to attend events and we also have to occasionally write some articles and be present for some of the things that Elise has so painstakingly organized. So, mm. yeah, so that's why it's this fun, I think, right? yes. Wow. <laughs> so it's actually a very, very all-rounded day for you. One curious point I have is what are the traits in founders and startup teams that you index for when it comes to investing into them? Mm. So I love to work with founders who have done it before, but founders who have done it before, some of them are so scared. They decided that once when I've exited the company, I'm going to become an investor, right? So, so, so I look forward to seeing a lot more repeat founders in our region. We have got some in our portfolio, but I think there's scope for way more. So, but putting aside repeat founders, then it's really about founders who are teachable, founders who are very driven, right? So these are the founders who are able to pick up and go. So if you look at a persona like, like Anthony, he was initially was traveling around with a pillow in his knapsack because he has got a bad back and he was taking airlines, uh, cheap airlines across the regions that he serves. So these are the real founders who believe very much in what they do. And even when there's discomfort, they continue to do it. Founders must also be able to rally teams with them. To what extent do they allow people to... Politics can happen even in a community of 10, right? Strangely, how do they set their feet or the pulse on the culture to make sure that you either give warning or you eradicate people who are seeding discord within such a small team, right? So founders must be willing to also do the hard stuff. When you have to talk difficult stuff and firing your staff as long as, are you willing to do that? And actually this, I have also seen in Russian that she's able to do the hard stuff, right? You rally teams, you also must be uh, very good at coaching them. Even though you are also waiting to be coached, you must also coach others so that they know your direction, what you are striving to do, and whether or not you need to rally them to come onto your page. Because if there's anybody who has a separate view, then they are not going to come alongside you. A great founder is also one who's excellent as a project manager as a result, right? Because there's yeah. so many things to do. You're constantly selling the company. So sell the company not only when it comes to fundraising. Every moment, the moment you open your mouth, you're actually selling your company. So to me, that is the mark of a founder that they're selling in season and off season. Mm. If I were to reverse the question, then what would what are the red flags that would deter you from investing in them? Mm. So interestingly, we have also met some founders who were very insistent that they were right. Right, so they are very stubborn and very early on in the conversation who was constantly correcting us. It's okay when you correct me because I don't understand your concept. But there's a way of saying things that is condescending versus correcting. So so for such founders, sometimes we'll just meet them once and then we'll be like, it's okay, what the best? I'm sure you'll find a correct investor, right? Then there are also some founders who loves to name drop. And I'm like, okay, I don't think I want to work with invest uh, founders for only name drops. I mean, if you're really good, I should hear of it, right? So if you name drop that, oh, so-and-so investor, so-and-so angel, so-and-so board member, I've spoken to them and they all endorse my product. Great. 
then go show me the results and you can nail them as contract providers, right? The other ones that we do have concerns, not because we don't invest in them, will be more solopreneurs. We have invested in solopreneurs. Roshni, again, being one of them, Daphne, another female founder, is one quite a number. We are always very concerned because that journey can be very, very tough, um, especially when things don't look right. Then who do you turn to, right? At least if you have got a co-founder, you can have heart to heart talk very challenging pushbacks from each of you because both of you are in it together. But when it's a solo founder, it's way harder. Who do they turn to if not for the board of directors? So we do provide that sounding board. But for me, sometimes solo founders are really tough. But like I said, mm. we still invest in them. Yeah. But it, just a top question on the solo founder question because I'm oscillating always between these two ends. I don't think there's a well-defined answer there's research from MIT saying that solo founders actually do much better and then there's also research for multi-team founders so to work. One perspective on solo founders is that they have a very clear direction on where they want to go. Yes. So maybe sometimes it's also a strength and not a weakness as well. So I just saw maybe I would like to dive deep and hear your thoughts yes. on, on, on that side it's of the true. house. It's true. So from our solo founders that we work with, it is very clear where they want to go to. However, when things are hitting them bad, and normally when some things hit them, they don't come one at a time. They all come together. Suddenly mm. you have got, your numbers are not making, the you're not making the numbers. Your clients call off a contract on you. You have got people resigning. You're running low on cash. There's got to be a lot of self-doubt. And that was one of those things that I have gone through with one of the founders recently where the founder was also starting to wonder about whether it was the right thing to have even started out on, on, on the entrepreneurship journey, whether it was the right thing to, perhaps the founder wasn't so good as a leader. So there were definitely a lot of self-doubt. So to the extent where we can, we will hear him out. Perhaps it's just a phase, right? But at least if there were two founders together, they could check in on each other and say, no, actually, be very logical. No, this guy took a long time. You could see the handwriting on the wall. He was going to call off the contract anyway. And this person who resigned, that person who resigned, perhaps we were already identifying them to be on the margins. So things like that, right? Mm. Um, but you're right. Solar founders is good because they are very clear. They were leading that one direction. But for me, Sometimes having a co-founder is quite good because especially if mm. you're equal in terms of, not, not so much equal in terms of shareholding, but equal in terms of I respect you, you respect me, they can then spar a lot more. So what are the interesting companies now within the portfolio that you can provide more color in the Southeast Asian market? I know you mentioned Ross Nia, you also talk about PetSnap. I think Jero is the founder, right? Yeah. So PetSnap is actually a very interestingly Founded by uh, Jeffrey. And Jeffrey, sorry, yeah. 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 right, you're right. Yeah, his co-founders all are all put together relatively uh, serendipitously. Uh, so you've got one kid who has now relocated to Singapore and you've got Marcus who needs the technical uh, development mm. also in Singapore. And you also have another guy, uh, Ray, who's over in London. Um, but what exactly are they doing, right? So they provide the UI, UX, uh, for all things very difficult to understand, aka intellectual property. So they just announced the launch of their co-pilot 
product. They also call it Eureka, which allows users to tailor their search within the large language model of PetSnap. So this company definitely has legs. And who would have reckoned that you can go into this very difficult, very dry space called intellectual property and to become a contender to one of the largest incumbents in the industry. What they did right was that because it's such a dry topic, they thought outside the box, right? Rather than to make the drier topic more dry by giving you faster results, search returns, what if I were to transform your search into a 3D landscape? So suddenly it's outside the box thinking it's a UI UX solution to an otherwise common problem that everybody has. Even Google patterns will give you returns in slides and slides or pages and pages of words. So that was the first transformation. Then they decided to acquire a whole lot more data. And now they have uh, assemb assembled a big database and which enables their users, the likes of large pharma companies, the, la the likes of even electric vehicle companies to search within their large language model to find things that will be tailor-suit uh, to the user profile. The idea behind it is, how can I help organizations to be more innovative? How can I help you to optimize your innovation budget? So this happens to be the fad or the words of, this, of, of the century right now. So it's really very good. I think within my portfolio, this is one of the star companies. Uh, and I joke with Jeffrey, right? I say, look, if you're going to, if you're going to benchmark this company to be IPO-able in NASDAQ, Having a single-digit billion-dollar company may not cut it. You need a double-digit billion-dollar valuation. So, so she's working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Any other companies other yes. than Pestnam? Okay. Um, yeah, how so, about? So this other company is called Turnkey Lender. So this hmm. is a digital infrastructure company that provides lending solutions to uh, corporates, to brands, to use it as a means to acquire customer or uh, to use it as a customer retention tool for loyalty, etc. So this is a company that also has a global proposition. So some people will call it a loan, only a loan management system, but it is more than just only a loan management system. It actually transforms again the whole user experience, super lightweight. So brands can actually hop on and design their own look and feel. So think of it as a Shopify for lending. Mm. Where you can ah. craft whatever that you want and you can loan out using your balance sheet. And people can decide, okay, if I want to buy a poodle, it's 5,000 euros, too expensive. I'm going to walk out to the next door and see what I can find it at 500 euros, uh, whatever euros lesser. So this pet shop, they know their inventory will grow older, right? So they need to get the inventory for puppies out as soon as possible. So using Tanky Lenders platform, they will be yeah. able to ascertain whether this potential buyer has got good credit history, whether I should give them an uh, installment payment of mm. six months, nine months on my balance sheet. And yeah, because it's a poodle, you need to bring that little puppy back for inoculation. And oh yeah, this is a cute little whatever, right? Little clothes or socks for the little poodle. So you have a lot of ways to upsell and engage directly with the customer. So in that sense, their solution has run from north to south east to west, from Australia for people in the refugee space to many Midwestern banks in USA to even some bite-out-pay-later folks in Latin America. So this is another company of which I am super 
excited about because it has got a global proposition. Mm. Yeah. We discussed earlier about the different markets. We talk, think of India as a very homogeneous market, Southeast Asia as a diverse market with different economic stages and digital maturity. How do you advise founders when expanding across these markets or dive deep into one large market? I think Indonesia is a very good example. I think Indonesia is big enough for Grab and Gojek to exist. So yes. how do they, how, what, what would be your advice to think about that yeah. perspective? Yeah, I, for them, a lot of them look to Indonesia. Okay, let's use Indonesia. Right? A lot of them look to Indonesia as a very big market. I, I don't disagree, right? 260 million people and counting. Every year, they have 5 million babies born. So they, they are really growing fast. However, that market is also very, it's also very spread out. So you have got a few key cities, but you also have many smaller cities. So while you see the big population, the question is really what exactly is what exactly can you get out of it? So mm. when we have got healthcare companies looking to expand to Indonesia, my question is always do people value money versus time? Does it make sense for you to then go over when you know number one, you've got incumbents, and number two, some people are willing to wait because they have got they have got solutions that government provides for free, right? So what exactly do we want to achieve out of it? Now, assuming we have done all the assessment and those markets look interesting, then the question is, are you going to outsource those markets to a local hire or are you going to relocate to those markets and squat there for a couple of months? Because founders need to at least be the first there to also hire the right people, set the culture, set the tone right. So to me, that will be an asset test. And if you're moving out from Singapore to the region, some people may have more resistance than others. So, so I think that's an asset test. But assuming that they, they, have, they, they don't plan to go big time in that, you want to work with partners. Then it's about finding the right partners and spend a lot of time talking, dating, going slower so that you don't need to redo, which will take even more time. So one of the things that I will say our government has done right, our government has done various things right, and one of the things that they have done right is this whole ASEAN scholarship thing, right? That has that is benefiting us if we know how, if only we know how to use it. So the ASEAN scholarship program has been in place for many many years, and some of these scholars have already gone back to their home countries and they have risen through the ranks somewhere, and at some point in time, all of us also aspire to on our time. So might this be the right time to speak to some of these ex-ASEAN scholars in those markets and resync and see whether or not they could be your hands and feet on the ground in those markets. So I feel this is one of the things to, we need to exploit. Singapore is a melting pot uh, of many it's, young people. It's, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that and when you do geographic expansion, even for myself as a CIO, we have someone who actually, when I was in, uh, my previous company where we actually have someone who's a veteran in the company for almost 12 years, Vietnamese, yes. and then we get to set up our yes. development hub there. And then it turns out to be pretty good because of the local knowledge and the ability to also communicate across. And I find that if you do not have that, it's actually very difficult to actually penetrate into a market that deep. Agreed. Agreed. Mm. So we should make use of all this kind of networks that our government had already invested in so many years ago. Mm. Yeah. Agree, agree. So 
During the uh, XAGM, I know we chatted during the panel and about the startup class of 2021 versus the startup class of 2023 in Southeast Asia. I want to revisit that question because your answer is very, very interesting. So what are the differences that you observed in these two classes and how well would they perform for the Southeast Asian VCs in the future? Yeah. So 2023 came through, it's called a very challenging fundraise season, right? So if their thesis can survive, I think they should be okay. The question is whether or not they can survive with or without VC funds. So, so it really depends on their thesis. Can they survive with or without VC funds? Those in 2021, they were a comfort of great times. So if they are smart, they should also have preserved the capital. And this could have lasted them for like 13 months or so. And some of our portfolio companies have this kind of insane runway, right? 30 months and above, even 18 months and above to me is insane. So the thing is that they will have to execute to the valuation expectation or else they must expect it to be a down round. And if, if this happens, then all the VCs will suffer as a result. Yeah, so, so that's my big take on it. So for mm. us, when we look at some of the 2023 cohort, the amount of money that they can raise is actually not that, that much. People are generally sitting on the sideline. If they are a very fraught company, then yes, you'll see a lot of money pouring in. But if they are one that is quite early, waiting to execute, then investors are willing to give them small amounts of money. But they, will, of course, the valuation is lower. But they will have to execute to the team before we will bring them up for fundraising again when they have maybe about 12 months of runway left. Yeah, so it's, the discipline is pretty different. We noticed that in 2023, the deals we look at, we do monitor very much on their various uh, CM levels and also on how much time before they become EBITDA positive. And you can know for sure when the company comes in for a second round fundraise with us, we will be taking this other, this old chart that we agreed on years, months back and put it alongside and say, okay, where have you done correctly? Where are you more challenged? <laughs> well, well, what didn't work and what would you have done differently? <laughs> and what would you have done differently? Many of them probably would have to do things differently. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're coming into 2024. So it's going to be much more interesting. What are the headwinds and tailwinds in the outlook for 2024 that most startups within the Southeast Asia and maybe also India, that maybe the worst is already over in 2022 and 2023? Yeah, I'm not sure if the worst is really over yet, you know, because founders, mm. I suppose founders wish for it to be over. So that's why uh, when we talk to some of the companies, the founders are still sticking to their valuation, although as an investor, I still feel that it is high, right? So maybe founders wish that it is over. To me, interest rate is still considered high, especially when we came from a super low time a couple of years ago. And honestly, companies are still retrenching, right? Some are more heartless than others, but they're still retrenching. So then founders will be made because companies are retrenching. So some of these people will start their own stuff. Right? But the question is really whether or not found, uh, founders will raise money from investors like VCs. The happy thing is that we as VCs, we have to deploy. You have also read and know the amount of money that our region is sitting on. So we will need to deploy. Now, the question is really, are we pressurized to deploy in subpar opportunities? And then the worst thing is, then can we even return money to our investors, right? So the last thing we want is to invest in subpar 
and everybody rush into the subpar and then suddenly everybody is written down to zero. Then as a region, we will not be able to see any new or we will never be able to be thriving as what we have been trying so hard to become. Mm. So what is the one thing you know about being a VC in both Southeast Asia and India that very few do? I feel like I'm going to be breaking you. <laughs> <laughs> that's a trade secret conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so like, actually, to me, it's pretty commonsensical, but when it's thrown out of the window, then it's, it's like, wow, it's insights, right? So I would say that many VCs, they behave like other VCs in other regions. So we all behave like herd, like sheep, right? Herd instinct. So we previously, for more now, we Joe more, right? So that to me is like, oh, I cannot be like that. I feel as VCs, as a class, we should exercise good judgment. We ought to be more collaborative rather than to behave like herds and allow founders to call on valuations at crazy multiples when the market is hot, right? So during the time when it was 2001, so now the reverse has actually happened. I was meeting a company and two weeks later, the valuation curve sort of like, grew by 1.5x two weeks later and I asked what exactly has changed because I cannot imagine during COVID business would have spiked right so he said oh no nothing just that the company became very hot in demand and we had a lot more people wanting to invest in the company so therefore we are increasing the valuation by one and a half times and I'm like my dad also had how can that be right I mean what is the unit economics measurement that we are putting into this company so so I'm like how can VCs behave like that? We just destroyed the business for ourselves. Now, when I turn it the other way, everybody is sitting on the sideline and everybody is being very scared. So I'm like, somebody has to pull some trigger somewhere. If not, the whole industry is going to sit on money and not return anything that's of meaning to investors. <laughs> so, so to me, we should exercise judgment. Yeah. So, so yeah. Reminds me knows. of the famous Warren Buffett quote, be greedy when everyone is fearful and be fearful when everyone is greedy. Yes, exactly. I mean, all of us would have followed this guru. We all would have known this tagline. But when it comes to putting into practice, it seems a little bit more challenging. But to be fair, there's money chasing after the few higher profile deals like, where maybe the founder is more charismatic. But there are so many more deals, right? But you just need a lot more hard work to go with them. Mm. Yeah. What would be your advice now to startup founders? Now we're at this little transitory period between a very difficult fundraising climate, maybe going into, you know, a little bit more relaxed in terms of capital deployment period. Yeah. So in the face of my own uh, business vertical, right, which is a VC, I feel that Actually, there could be many founders who actually do not need to raise money from VCs. So first point is really check and see whether or not you really need to raise money from VCs because if you really need to, then you're running on my timeline. You can't grow the company according to your timeline because I have a fun life. I've got certain multiples I need to meet. I will probably exert some pressure if the numbers are not coming, right? So that's number one. Then number two, Founders are always selling the company and selling themselves. So the founders has to be very resourceful. Every call is a call to find money, to find talent, to find market. So they have to be very resourceful in making full use of their time. And if you need to clarify your ideas, 
go clarify it. But once when you have kind of like confirmed this is what I would like to do, then every call, every engagement, is one engagement to bring our business one step forward. Then the next thing is actually to continue to show traction, make small performances, achieve small performances, and speak to your friends, your angels, and go slow again, like I said, you know, really go slow at engaging VCs. It's better for VCs to chase you than for you to chase VCs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So that will be some of those things. Like you just have to make sure you are good in engaging people. It's okay if you are a small company. 70 over percent of our of our ecosystem is all of our entire economy is founded behind SMEs anyway. So it's okay. Yeah. Mm. I, I want to ask you this thing because very few VCs talk about is the concept of LPs, which the VCs are have a kind of their customers. How do you convince LPs or investors out there now on the Southeast Asia story? It's going to be very important because you still need capital to deploy, not just the grabs, the future grabs in the next decade yeah. as such. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. The whole Southeast Asia has to come up as a group. Hence, that's why back to my secret about what I know about the VC industry that people don't know. The secret is that you've got to be very sane when it comes to investing, right? So if you invest so high, we can't get exits. Then when we can't get exits, we can't return money to LPs. And then the investors will say, oh, Southeast Asia cannot find exits one. Cannot be, right? So to me, we must be able to show exits. That's the proof of the pudding. I would love, and again, that's why I said earlier on, I love to engage large tech companies, the Google, the Amazon, and so on, and to encourage them to consider acquiring some of the companies in Southeast Asia. So when I was thinking about it, right, how many companies were acquired by large tech in Southeast Asia? In India, a few of our companies were able to be sold to large tech companies. A few, just our portfolio. In Southeast Asia, which are the ones as a group Southeast Asia? So Vicky was acquired by Rakuten in 2013 for 200 million. That was great, right? Google acquired Pi this in 2016. What has it as about 50 million or so? And then after that, I don't remember. I don't really remember. Maybe my memory is bad. I don't really, really remember any other exists of tech companies. Okay, like maybe Zendesk. That's also yeah. another one. But other than that, which are the other ones that have been acquired? I feel we need to have a couple more regular momentum, a regular heartbeat where acquisitions happen uh, mm. by some of these large tech companies. Then the whole region will become more exciting. And, and mm. investors from around the world will not just look at, oh, India, maybe Japan, maybe Korea. Uh, and what is this big patch in between? Not sure, right? Mm. Yeah, the amount of access is going to probably be important. There was Space Mob, which Sunday your portfolio was acquired by WeWork. And then there yes. are a couple, and but they also, some of them went IPO as well in either spec like Grab or Gojek, who went mm-hmm. into listing in other markets as such. So yeah, my final the spec, the spec listing didn't really show good results, right? So that's why I'm mm. like, let's talk about M and A. M and A are better measurements uh, because it's a lot to be written about when the transaction is complete. Is complete, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas for anything that is in the public market, you still need to sit out the lockup periods, and you're still subject to sentiments in the market to price it. True, true. That's a very good point, Kevin. My traditional closing question, what does Grid look like for Vertex Ventures, Southeast Asia and India in the next few years? 
to be the first port of call for founders. That will be what rate looks like. So regardless of whether we invest or we don't invest, that uh, founders think of us first because we give good advice, because we care about the founders. And even, and even if we don't invest, uh, we will still put them into our little network, i.e. whatever that we are running in the tech circle, in the hard truths, in our blogs. Come and many thanks for coming on the show and really thank you for extending that conversation that we have in the XAAGM. So in closing, I have two quick questions. Any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Yeah, so one of the things that I found myself doing was to be part of a book club. So, so this book club was started by a friend. And to me, that was really good because we, we have people coming together and many of us are not in the VC space. And we discuss topics like over books like Power Law, Cheap War, and now we're reading the book on economy. So it's very interesting to hear from them on views from people who are not in my industry. So I think this is really cool. Join a book club and do something different. Hmm, that's interesting. How do my audience find you? Yeah, so I do have a LinkedIn profile. You can check me out, Yuan Carmen, or at LinkedIn. If not, at Vertex Ventures, we also have a LinkedIn. We also have an Instagram handle. And at the same time, we also have a podcast called Hard Truths. Yes, and you also have a website that also do a lot of advice to founders as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely, you all can find this podcast through YouTube and across all podcasts platforms. We have a newsletter now in LinkedIn and our main site. So we urge you to subscribe to it. Carmen, many thanks for coming on the show and we look forward to speak to you again. Thank you.